Hi, this is Areej Noor, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Wrap, a weekly radio show weaving conversations about culture, politics, literature, art and music into a weekly mix. Broadcast live on Triple R from Kulin Nations land in Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Samati Verma is an immigration lawyer and writer. She's also a campaigner with Undocumented Migrants Solidarity. Samati, thank you for joining me this morning. Thanks for having me. Hey, just in terms of um, these conversations that are being had across the news and the media um, about different migrants, asylum seekers, refugees, undocumented migrants, international students, temporary (laughs) visa holders, there's... Mm quite a variety of people who have different entitlements and different um, experiences. Can you just give us like a very, very brief overview of of these different um, visa holders? Yeah, so I guess over the past couple of months, you know, since um, the lockdowns have come in, you know, a range of different groups have um, started to, you know, agitate and contemplate the range of people who are you know, not covered um, by government subsidies and wage protection measures and, you know, broader social protections. I mean, obviously, the first line of that is, you know, people, irrespective of their visa status, Australians or otherwise, who are in casual employment and there's, you know, hot contest around mass casualisation in in the workforce and things like that. And then people are, you know, beginning to contemplate, rightly so, the position of people who don't have permanent residence or, or who don't have you know, any kind of stable right to stay in the country. So the conversation sort of focused on um, temporary visa holders and you would have seen, like, a lot of media come out about, you know, this figure, sort of 1.1 million temporary visa holders in the country, um, you know, and, you know, the rights of visa holders, whether they be international students, whether they be temporary workers, th- things like that. Um, you know, but as, the, as time has gone on, I guess, you know, people in the community, you know, people who are affected, you know, people who have lived experience and also campaigners in solidarity supporting them have begun to point out, actually, you know, the figure of people that we're looking at is closer to 2 million. If you contemplate not just people with temporary visas, but also people who have very precarious visa status. So, for instance, they have bridging visas and they're waiting on a decision to be made on a case or they're maybe waiting to leave the country or they're, you know, heading from one visa to another and don't know ultimately what's going to happen. Um, And it also includes people who don't have any visas at all, Um, you know, people who are undocumented. And that's not a category of people um, that is much discussed in the Australian context, um, as opposed to, say, in Europe or, say, in North America. Um, But, you know, Australians, with their deep love of the queue and, you know, orderly migration systems wouldn't acknowledge that there are, you know, up to 100,000 people in the country um, at the moment who, who simply have no visa status at all. And that's not just... I'm talking, you know, provisionally where you forget to kind of put your paperwork in, but I'm talking people who have been in the country for years and years or potentially even decades um, without visa status who are just as much part of the community as anybody else, irrespective of what their legal status says. So, you know, when we talk about, you know, groups of migrants or migrant communities that are left out of government protections um, in the current crisis, we need to, I guess, be a little bit more specific about... Um, the very, um, you know, very specific conditions that are faced by different groups of people depending on, uh, you know, how the law frames 
frame their status. Mm. And right at the, the bottom of the chain and um, amongst the most kind of deeply effective, uh, affected and underprivileged folks are people who are undocumented. We'll um, chat a little bit about um, the people who are undocumented and the work of the undocumented migrant solidarity in a minute, but I just want to chat for a minute about international students. So it's like week nine, week 10 um, of semester, and there was this whole moment when um, Prime Minister Scott Morrison just basically told people that they can just go back home. Of course, that is not feasible for everyone. But just for a little bit of context, what is the broader relationship between universities in Australia and international students and, you know, the kind of economic relationships that exist in that way? Yeah, man, that's a a big discussion. (laughs) Um, That's, you know, there's like much smarter people than me who have been talking for, you know, decades since John Howard sort of, um, John Howard and then, you know, governments, even Labor governments following him, following him, you know, restructured federal funding arrangements for Australian universities that occurred at the same time as sort of, you know, the neoliberalisation of education, higher education involved um, creating this market of international education. You know, in the beginning it was directed towards Australian universities and then, you know, grew up this completely separate vet sector, you know, then there was this kind of roundabout in 2009 where, you know, the Gillard, um, well, eventually the Gillard government then restructured the nature of the international education economy. So again, it privileged Australian universities. So there's this sort of pendulous relationship between um, international education and um, Australian universities and alternatively the Australian um, international vet sector. But essentially speaking, um, international student revenue is absolutely critical and crucial to the way that Australian universities um, function at the at the minute and just the bold way in which universities, you know, that there are real parallels um, and, you know, opportunities for solidarity to be had with current campaigning that's happening for casuals. Um, you know, on, in Australian universities, the higher education sector has been casualised like so many others. So the people just have working there have absolutely no job security. And at the same time, the universities are thoroughly exploitative of international students and, and treat them as, you know, total commodities and consumers without, you know, any rights whatsoever, such that, you know, when, um, you know, there, there's moments of economic crisis like this, universities you know, barely move to do anything for their students or, you know, tell them to go home or, you know, things like this as though they're sort of dispensable and they haven't paid, you know, hundreds and thousands of dollars um, for the privilege of studying in in Australia and they're not owed something in return. Mm. And in terms of, like, their visa entitlements, you know, often they work in kind of precarious employment and that has been lost, as it has been for many different people. But what about when it comes to, you know, healthcare and other things for them, for international students? Yeah, look, it's, it's all really it's all really difficult. Um, the, I, I mean, it's all bound up, uh, not to answer a question that we're, we're probably going to come to a little bit later, but... Mm. Um, Really interestingly today, um, the United Workers Union, which is a very broad union that's coming together of the National Union of Workers and United Voice, and so it covers, you know, a range of sectors where that, that are now, you know, dominated by um, migrant workers, including international student workers like security, aged care, you know, and importantly, you know, the horticultural supply chain, so the entire supermarket supply chain, um, you know, excluding, I guess, 
supermarkets and in the retail sense. But they, they put out a report that essentially says that um, workers working on farms in Australia, um, you know, represent this sort of, I guess, at an extreme public health risk um, because of the circumstances in which they work, but also because of the systematic way that they're denied healthcare. So that social problems and medical problems and all of these things are, like, obviously intertwined. And the same is the case for international students. So, I mean, technically speaking, what the government will tell us is that international students as a requirement for their visa must have private health insurance. But, of course, you know, albeit that's a requirement for the visa, people's, once they have the visa, people's economic circumstances can change from time to time such that they might not be able to afford to keep up their private mm -hmm. health insurance, in which case, of course, as a temporary visa holder, you're not entitled to access Medicare. Or, you know, you might be hesitant to accessing Medicare or you um, might be perhaps under an incorrect assumption that you have to pay for medical treatment related to COVID and so, you know, delay the way that you receive treatment. Um, because of the way that international students live, you know, in these kind of massive high-rise buildings that universities have sort of annexed um, ne next to their um, sort of pre premises these days, and the way that, you know, students are kind of living many people to a house, um, there's a clear, you know, and, and the way the kind of jobs that students engage in, so, you know, retail work, frontline work, you, you might have read that, you know, Coles and Woolies have this sort of um, memorandum with the department that... Um, you know, shelf stackers during the crisis who international students will be permitted to work over their 20-hour limit. So, you, you know, which suggests to us that students are going to be working really, really hard in really frontline settings. So, I mean, all of these things conspire to mean that, you know, not only is temporary visa status, you know, not only does that present certain economic burdens um, for international students and other temporary visa holders, but there is a corollary public health risk associated with it because of the poor circumstances in which people are forced to live. It's, it's really interesting. I, I work at a university and it's really interesting to have conversations with my students about about their experiences and how they're going and students that are in lockdown in these little tiny apartments who don't see anyone, who don't have family, who don't actually have the opportunity to go back home, who are struggling. Um, and there have been lots of articles about students who have, um, you know, been waiting in line for free food from um, restaurants who that have, you know, just opened up their hearts and their kitchens because they know that these communities are in need. And it's just quite an interesting um you know, it's it's just watching this unfold is really, really difficult because you know how much these people bring into the community and into the um, the economy, which is what the Australian um, government really <laughs> focuses so much on. And there really is nothing that they get in return. If, uh, yeah. It's, and, and, you know, not to quantify someone's value based on what they bring economically, but even in, you know, government standards, that's something that they consider and it's just so interesting how quickly they were thrown under the bus. Yeah, look, absolutely. And, you know, there are kind of, like the internet become this world of memes um, about, you know, how it turns out that, you know, the owners of capital weren't the quote-unquote wealth creators after all. It was, in fact, people who were doing the work. Yeah. Um, you know, it's sort of the, the treatment of temporary workers is sort of, I guess not symptom is the wrong word, but... Um, you know, a, yet another case study of the way in which, you know, the work that's kind of the most critical, not, not to value people according to their labour, but the work that's the most critical is also the most precarious and also the most underpaid. Um, you, you know, that this sort of proposition that at, at the end of the day, you know, when laid bare, um, 
you know, capitalism doesn't take any prisoners. Like, it, it has no real friends. It, it doesn't really intend to value people according to, um, you know, their lives and their contribution. It actually just intends to exploit, mm. um, you know, to the extent that is humanly possible. And in the situation that we're in right now, it's just so obvious that you can't even ignore it at this point. At this point, yeah, it's just yeah, it's, it's all it's all pretty it's all pretty stark, you know. When you've got kind of, um, you know, Gurdwaras are doing these, um, you know, there are Gurdwaras out in sort of Craigieburn and stuff like that that have, you know, got these kind of COVID delivery trucks, and it's all, you know, this stuff is having having to happen on this industrial um, scale, and like keeping in mind that Australia's. Um, you know, in terms of, like, the first line of infection is not the kind of hellscape that um, America has become. Um, but, you know, you know, the rate of transmission has not been as high here in other places, and yet there sort of had to be this massive kind of parastate response to actually providing for people because there are so many people for whom the state will just not provide and just not answer at all. In terms of um, undocumented migrants in Australia, you've mentioned the numbers were upwards of 100,000. What have what has COVID-19, how have the impacts been on their lives and what kind of communication do you have with those communities and what kind of support they're in need of? Yeah, yeah. So um, about two months ago, um, sort of a, a bunch of like-minded folks came together to form something called Undocumented Migrant Solidarity. Um, so it's just a group of people who were, um, you know, all sorts of different backgrounds, so, uh, you know, social workers, lawyers, community organisers, unionists, um, who were interested in, uh, I guess, supporting and shedding light on the really serious disadvantage and the really serious risks that people who are undocumented face. Um, and the first thing that we organised to do is um, put together this very emergency kind of um, immediate first-line response fundraiser um, to provide money to different groups that were working on the ground with um, un undocumented workers. And, you know, happily we managed to raise. We've raised state $65,000, which, you know, in a sense is not nothing, but in another sense is sort of nothing when you go to parcel it out. Um, I guess those funds have kind of gone into the hands of people, as I said, who are working on the ground with um, people who are undocumented and so, you know, we hear from those organisations. So, for instance, Farmer Refugee Council, the United Workers' Union, you know, specifically their farm workers' team, um, Scarlet Alliance, which is a sex workers' organisation, um, and, you know, RISE um, refugee um, survivors and ex-detainees, an extraordinary um, refugee-run organisation that's based in Melbourne. So I guess what we're hearing, and Farmer Refugee Council have also done an, a remarkable job of this sort of um, documenting the situation that, that undocumented members of theirs are in. Um, the situation is absolutely diabolical um, for the reason that, of course, people who are undocumented, um, you know, go out of their way to avoid having to come into contact with authorities, including hospitals. Mm. Um, so, you know, people are in a situation where they will not access medical care if they require it. Um, people work in such sectors where work is extraordinarily precarious, you know, driving Ubers or, you know, working in... Um, contract cleaning positions or working in factories that are now subject to shutdown and, you know, where do people go to access support? So, you know, the Dunwall Refugee Council was sharing these stories of, you know, women who are undocumented living, you know, in kind of very crowded houses full of men or, you know, um, a, another member of theirs who's living in, 
you know, something that resembles sort of a shed annexed to a property but paying, like, commercial rent that, like, any university student um, who's an Australian citizen would, would pay, you know, to live in a perfectly normal share house but it's being paid for an illegal annex. It's just some, some pretty um, hairy stuff that's going on. Um, and, you know, for people who are interested in it, I'd really commend this report that's come out today um, that, you know, it's been prepared by the United Workers' Union, but it's in fact been written by, you know, a social epidemiologist um, in, in partnership with uh, an expert labour lawyer. And it just breaks down exactly, you know, the social disadvantage, the situation that undocumented people, particularly, you know, in farms and horticulture face, um, and also the serious health risks that are associated with that, um, because seriously, the example of countries all over the world, you know, the situation of migrant workers in Dubai, closer to home, the situation of migrant workers living in dormitories in Singapore, um, you know, should spell out for Australia what is likely to follow for these communities. And as a result, the broader Australian community, um, if something is not done to attend to people's vulnerability um, straight away. Yeah. And, and how can people support? I know that there's a GoFundMe and, you know, funds are being raised for these communities. Is, yeah. is there anything else that people can do? Yeah, look, um, so Undocumented Migrant Solidarity is sort of, um, we're on Facebook if you, if you want to follow us and, and, and have a look. Um, but um, I guess, you know, for the moment, other than the GoFundMe and, you know, we'd invite people, there's no such thing as kind of, um, you know, enough money and material support for organisations that are doing this work. So go ahead if, if you have the means and you can. But um, more importantly, I guess the function that we serve at the moment is to kind of direct people who might not otherwise have been exposed to the work of these organisations or um, otherwise exposed to the work that's being done on the ground with people who are undocumented in Australia towards the resources, towards the, the organisations and the people who are doing this, this work because seriously they, they require all sorts of support. They deserve to have their voices amplified. Um, mm. it, it's critical, critical work. It, it always has been and, um, you know, the circumstances now... Um, reveal just how serious and important and frontline that that work is. So um, follow us, and more importantly, follow the work of Tamil Refugee Council, the United Workers Union, Rise Refugee, Damian Migrante, um, both in Melbourne um, and in Sydney, Scarlet Alliance. Um, there just there were a few others. You can have a look at our Facebook for a, for a full list. Mm. Samati, thank you so much for joining me and taking the time. I know you're very busy. Um, and thank you also for all the work you do and have continued and have been doing for a long time since I met you years and years ago. <laughs> mm, pleasure. Thank you. It was nice to speak. I'm excited to be joined by Latai Taomao Piao, who is a performing artist whose practice connects the realities of today with the deeper conditions of our past. She's speaking on a panel as a lead artist of Arts House's Refuge Program. And as I mentioned, the topic this time is preparing for a pandemic, which seems pretty apt. Latai, thank you for joining me. Nice to um, speak with you, Arid. Nice to, nice to um, be on your program. Thank you. As an artist in the midst of um, this really wild time, this pandemic, how have you been dealing? How has your work changed? How has your thinking changed, if at all? Yeah, um, it hasn't changed too much. Um, 
I think having more time and more space to go in deeper into things that I've been thinking about and having more space, actually. I think as an artist, that's, you know, it's been nice to um, pause for a moment and assess the things that, that um, you know, that we're working on. Because often with artists, you're juggling several projects that are not related to each other and also over different time spans. So, you know, working into the future, into a year or a two years even, you know, in terms of the projects that you're working on. So it's been a time for me to reflect on um, the things that I'm doing um, and, and spend a bit more time than I'd like to um, in more of the research of things because it's obvious, you know, you can't go out and do anything. Like with many shows had closed and, you know, lots of um, contracts, you know, just disappeared, melted before our eyes. So, um, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult thing to um, to balance out, but, you know, there's, there's a depth, I think, um, to having had a bit more time to think about things. And your work is kind of centres several different elements of yourself and your life and um, experience, and it is um, mostly of performance practice, isn't it? Yeah, it's it, it's performance. I mean, my my work sits at the nexus of of dance, live art, and visual art, mm-hmm. um, and usually centres my body. So I perform live um, and I frame it with a whole range of ideas and concepts that um, usually come from my cultural background, although it's never really visible. Mm. You know, my body is kind of the only representation of, let's say, other or um, place or culture. So, yeah, my practice is predominantly performance and I started with dance and training um, and have you know, kind of blurred the lines between what my practice is. And sometimes I actually prefer to call myself an anti-disciplinary artist Mm. so then I don't have limitations. Yeah. Um, In terms of your... So did you do formal um, dance training? Was that a part Um, of your... Yeah, I... I studied um, contemporary dance. I also studied Pacific Island cultural dance mm-hmm. um, in, you know, institutions like, you know, dance schools, um, universities. But I also um, acknowledge that I have um, time, I've done time on nightclubs, dance, dance floors mm-hmm. and, um, you know, ballet, jazz, tap and all that, you know, in church halls. And, <laughs> you know, so I think it's, It all contributes to um, how I've embodied expression in my body, and and that that is all that it's all relevant. It's not just institutional or formal institutions that I acknowledge, and I find that really boring as well. You know, because I think we're always accumulating things in our bodies every day. You know, from the moment we are birthed. So, yeah, I think it's. all of it is relevant in my practice. Yeah. And you also look through um, and think about and engage with the impact of climate crisis in the Pacific. And this program, um, the Refuge Program at Arts House, really engages with different types of crises, right, um, and has had many iterations in that. And at the moment, you're looking at, you know, 
the pandemic that we're in, right? You're looking at preparing for yeah. a pandemic. Have you thought, you know, before the situation that we're in now, did you ever think about um, this type of pandemic or a pandemic of ever of any sort in terms of how it relates to a climate crisis or the climate crisis in, in the Pacific? Yeah, definitely. Well, I mean, refugees in its fifth year, actually. Mm-hmm. So it's an it's been a project that has been led by artists and, you know, um, initiated and facilitated by Arts House in North Melbourne. And each year in the refuge program um, had a different theme that was related to the environment and 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 was framed by climate change. So we were looking at emergency events. Um, as a result of being impacted by climate change. And so, you know, that started with uh, floods in the first year, which I think was 2016, um, and then the heat waves, and then the third year was actually pandemic. That was 2018. So we did actually um, look at pandemics already, and it's interesting now in our fifth year where, where we were actually looking at um, displacement as a result of climate change and that we are no longer in the rehearsal of a mm. pandemic or an emergency event, but we are now inside one. And so crossing that threshold has been something that has been really important to Refuge as a, as a program um, and preparing communities for these increasing events that we've already, we were already experiencing a few, you know, several years back now. And yeah, so when we did look at pandemics in 2018, um, you know, we we spent a lot of time and were hosted actually by the Peter Doherty Institute um, in Melbourne. And we were looking, that was actually the anniversary of the Spanish flu. Mm. So we we were deep in a bit of exploration around pandemics that we that were were already experienced and well documented. And we also got an opportunity to look at a whole range of things. Now, I originally, um, well, my ancestry is um, Pacific Islander. I'm Tongan. And, you know, I, I like to go home all the time. And so a few summers ago, I was in Tonga and I actually got dengue fever, which is was not something that was ever really experienced in Tonga, but it's a vector-borne virus that's spread by mosquitoes. And because of the increase of temperature and damp conditions, these, um, the Aegean mosquito has, you know, increased in its, um, you know, worldwide. He's like, you can find them just about everywhere now. And they carry this virus, um, which, you know, dengue fever. And so this this is a climate change-related virus, you know. So this is my interest in, in um, viruses kind of came from there. And then, of course, we were looking at pandemics. And so the thing about pandemics that I've been reflecting on a lot um, during this time, or actually viruses um, that are related to climate change, you know, because I think it's difficult to make that connection, and I've been looking for that myself and thinking, how does that work? And I, I think one of the things that I've been um, reading about is the that the further away from the natural world human beings become, and this is, I think, urban dwellers, this mm-hmm. is 
you know, a reality. We're so removed from the natural world um, that we, we forget that we're actually part of nature and that that these, you know, we we forget that these things, you know, we, we don't have, we don't create the right um, immunity to lots of things. You know, I'm probably not going to articulate this as well as people who are going to be speaking tomorrow, but, you know, the, the reality is is that the more we destroy our natural world, the more likely we're going to have more and more viruses um, because the contact between wild animals, is, you know, is more um, available. We don't have many things, you know, buffering us from these these viruses that jump from animals to humans. Um, so I think there's a, there's a connection there, you know, and some of my very basic reading around, you know, the way vaccines and medicines are developed, you know, they come from diverse ecosystems, you know, forests and, you know, really places that we don't frequent. And so when as we destroy these things, not only do we make ourselves more susceptible to, to having viruses, but also more susceptible to... Um, you know, suffering greatly because we don't, we won't be able to access the kinds of medicines that are needed to kind of, um, yeah, attack those viruses back. You know, yeah. so it's, it, it, I think it's try, yeah, I think it, it's about trying to think about things holistically and mm-hmm. can remember that humans are a part of nature and that we, you know, we, this is all part of um, much bigger, you know. Um, planet yeah Uh, yeah it's interesting because I was speaking with a friend about um about you know the virus and about how and how it relates to our lived environment and like the hyper urbanization of the world right and and as you said the really close contact you know if that's the origins of the virus you know which we've, we've been told and whatever of between wild animals and people and and that isn't just something that happens based on culture or something that happened based on um you know little you know, decisions made by individual people. These are big kind of structural um, changes that exist in the world of capitalism, in the world of neoliberalism and in the world of like hyper-urbanism, right? And it's so interesting how disconnected the the discourse is from um, our broader environment. And as you said, the holistic view of the way that we live as individuals and as a a globe um, and what's going on right now. And also the impacts more broadly, right? Who's going to be most impacted? Who is not going to be serviced? And, you know, these kind of broader conversations of a of a pandemic um and and where we're headed at the moment in terms of the discourse just don't align i feel yeah yeah absolutely i mean i think this is what's so important about um having a focus in the science of it as well mm. you know i think and 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 letting and the science being able to help inform how you behave socially how you behave politically and you know what those relationships are and i think there are many um you know people indigenous people who have already experienced the impact of things like disease and viruses mm. you know and so it's important to 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 look at the, those that history. It's important to 
um, build your own kind of social relationships. I think, you know, I think something that we can learn from island people, and I'm, I mean people who actually live on islands, not just islanders who are diaspora, but that, you know, there's a, there's a relationship, um, a way that people build relationships because they know that they're, that, that that's their strong, strongest resource is how they relate to each other mm. in space, you know, um, socially. And I think this is part of the, some of the things that we're seeing that are, that are happening in society, like particularly city um, centres, is that people don't have the strong relationships with, like, say, their neighbours or, you know, people that are in close proximity to them. And so their, their kind of sense of um, isolation is is even, you know, greater. And so I think part of preparing for for these events that demand isolation um, is ensuring that you have, you prepare yourself for, you know, with other people mm. and how to, how to um, relate to one another, knowing that, you know, we're in a space of extreme fear and panic and that produces some really can produce some really terrible things in people, and so knowing that about ourselves, that's part of how we, what we can prepare. You know, how do we prepare mentally? How do we prepare um, socio-relational networks mm. to to deal with that? Because, it, you know. What we what we've seen happen um, is pretty dangerous. You know, people buying more than they need to. They don't, you know, because they don't understand how anything works. Like even what we're learning about how our um, cities are, are provided for. You know, mm-hmm. that food isn't stored. You know, behind that wall in our shopping in our supermarkets like you know they're actually shipped in and timed at a very in a very specific way so things don't have to get stored and so we're you know how do we how do we strengthen ourselves so we don't react in a way that is going to be detrimental to our own health and the people around us you know so there's a it's interesting, isn't it? Like it is. <laughs> the, the, the mental health and the mental stamina, you know, that's required and, and pretty strong politics, I think. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, it is. It's definitely interesting. It's also one of those times that are uh, you know we know that he's in I don't know ten years, five years, two years. We might reflect back on this and and talk about it. But when you're in the midst of it, it's always such an unusual experience, right? But it seems mm. that you know people have been thinking about and people have been in the midst of crisis um, in different pockets of the world for forever, right? It's a constant, and so it's just a very interesting and unusual feeling to to experience that, you know, firsthand right now. Mm. Um, yeah. In terms of, you know, as an artist, how do you work through this um, time and this period creatively, right? Like how do you engage with pandemic and thinking about it in this holistic way um, through your practice? Um, I mean, my practice doesn't, isn't ever never really switches off you know it's constantly constantly making things in my mind and um yeah i think 
in, in the within the pandemic, I think it, it's it's difficult to to um, uh, avoid thinking about a whole range of of things. You know, like mm. because we're we're all experiencing stuff. We want to protect people that we know and love. You know, but some of it has been. You know, I've been talking a lot lately about um, one of the things that that fills my time for one hour a day since the beginning of lockdown has been um, doing homeschool with my niece and nephew in Canberra. You know, so my sister and I live in Sydney together and um, my brother and his wife and, and their children, two of their children live in Canberra. And so since the kids, you know, who were seven and, and nine stopped going to school, we thought we could do um, Auntie's School of Arts, Culture and Humanities with the kids. So, you know, <laughs> it's like the fun, the most fun school, you know, but it created a bit of a routine where, you know, we've been talking about a whole range of things with, the, with our kids, like from critical thinking to Antarctica to, you know, <laughs> understanding the virus and, and just engaging in how they're thinking about things and also giving, you know, my brother and his wife a little bit of space to for themselves because they're trapped in the house with their children, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, you know, I kind of, it, it's been really quite inspirational to kind of think of things, really big things, and and try and um, work out ways of, of sharing that with more children, as well as that giving you us some relief as well, like some really, you know, good vibes. Like we have dance jams mm-hmm. and everything, like, you know, we put on a track and we all dance and... You know, we draw, we do drawings. You know, so I think that that's the the very kind of daily basic um, way that you know that um, we've made something. Um, and you know, we have we invite other people to our zooms with you know to that, so we can we do hat parades and you know, so there's just ways that we can connect. Um, but also it's an opportunity to talk with our own generation of people like how are you doing like what you know what what's going on where you are and how do you feel about things so I think creating these little channels where people can um, discuss things is is very creative and very artistic as well you know I don't, I don't think it's all about presenting things because you know we know that we consume so much already and there's so much available already online and you know there have been I've had some really wonderful um, opportunities with the arts organisations that I'm connected with who've been really really incredible and generous to think about artists and create opportunities for artists to 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 earn a little bit of money while we're in lockdown because as you know as you know um, you know artists haven't been able to access the same kind of jobkeeper uh, um, packages mm. and so the arts organisations have been really instrumental even though they've lost so much funding themselves in, in holding artists up and, and creating ways that we can um, participate in online forums um, and even explore digital forms of, of our own practices. So you know this, this talk series, this pandemic talk series is very interesting because I actually arrived in Melbourne um, on the week of just before the lockdown had gone into effect and we were going into our lab, the refuge lab, which happens every year. And we, all the artists and all the stakeholders come together and, and you know, share 
a whole lot of ideas of how we might approach that emergency that year, you know. And so we were looking at displacement, but that kind of got shafted. To, so then we had to look back to pandemics again. Um, but we also had to cancel. And I had to return back to Sydney and go straight into lockdown. So, you know, I think arts uh, arts practice um, is very versatile and flexible. And I think artists have had to adapt and change, and which is very hard, actually. Um, and, I, you know, for me, I've resented sometimes where people have said, well, don't you have time now to write your book or your play? Or It's like, no, I actually want to hurt and feel the trauma of this pandemic just like you as well. I need a bit of time and to, to get my head straight about how I'm going to approach this, you know. And so, you know, I think for me it's been, it's been wonderful being able to um, do this online um, talks and and things like that, um, and and potentially make some things for you know some video kind of work. But I think um, one of the things that that sometimes helps us artists is that we can actually wear our heart on our sleeve and show that process of our emotion um, and our thinking, and our, and that's the innovation that becomes a service to the wider community. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think even just talking through this, um, through the panel that's happening tomorrow afternoon, preparing for a pandemic, hearing from different parts of, you know, our society, different people who have different expertise, um, I think it will be comforting, right? Like people will be informed and, you know, they, they will be a rich experience of information and and all of that but I think it's also something quite comforting to sit and listen to um you know often creatives and artists as well of of course as scientists and people who are involved in the health profession um talk through this experience and hopefully people can relate to it and enjoy it and and feel comforted in some way by it and learn something too Mm. absolutely so it's happening tomorrow, Thursday the 21st of May. It's at midday Australian Eastern Standard Time. It goes for 60 minutes. It's live streamed on Zoom and you will have to register on the Arts House website if you would like a link to the Zoom. And it's hosted by um, Lee Shang Lon. It is featuring Latai, of course, um, Priyanka Pillai, who's a uh, health informatics specialist, um, Beth Eggleston, who is a human- from the Humanitarian Advisory Group, Ellen Van Nieuwen, who is a writer, um, and Jen Ray, who's an artist, and there'll be some live music by the beautiful Alara. Uh, mm. It sounds amazing. Yeah, it'll <laughs> be, be great. And I'll then be tuned in. <laughs> every Thursday for the next, yeah, every Thursday for the next three weeks, so tomorrow and then Thursday the 28th and then June the 4th, I think it is, um, that will be the, the whole series and... Yeah, we're covering a whole range of really interesting um, ways into preparing, recovering and being in a pandemic. Preparing for a pandemic presented by Arts House Latai. Thank you so much for joining me this morning. Thank you so much. It's been lovely chatting with you, Areej. 
Hey, big thanks to all of my guests this morning, Latai, Tamau, Piao for chatting with me about an upcoming panel. She'll be on tomorrow at midday as part of Arts House's Refuge Program. The topic this time is preparing for a pandemic, which is very, very apt. Jump on the Arts House website to register. A big thanks also to Sanmati Verma for answering all my questions about migrant workers, visas, and how we can support our community of undocumented and under-resourced migrants in Australia. Check out the Undocumented Migrant Solidarity page on Facebook. There's heaps of info on there for you. It has been so much fun hanging out with you this week. This has been The Wrap. My name is Avrij. You can uh, catch me next week. Be safe and kind and look after each other. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Wrap, a weekly radio show weaving conversations about culture, politics, literature, art and music into a weekly mix. Broadcast live on Triple R from Kulin Nations land in Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast, and if you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.